Welcome. You're listening to a podcast by the International Bolshevik Tendency, a Marxist organization fighting for international working class revolution to overthrow global capitalism. We can be found online at Bolshevik.org, on Facebook at Bolsheviks, on Twitter and YouTube at IBT1917, and Instagram at Bolsheviks1917. This talk is entitled Trotsky on the Popular Front. It was originally delivered at an online IBT study class on 26 June 2022. The term uh, Popular Front or People's Front, um, as it's also known, as um, has a specific meaning uh, in the Trotskyist tradition. But it's actually a term that didn't originate in our movement. It's uh, a Stalinist term. And it originally comes out of the zigs and zags of Comintern and Soviet foreign policy in the 1920s and the 1930s, um, after the victory of Stalin's faction in the Soviet Union in 1924. Um, But uh, the Popular Front or People's Front also has a much broader uh, political implication uh, outside of specifically Spain in the 1930s, which is uh, the focus for today. So in the uh, mid-20s, there was a rightist uh, zig in common term policy, which involved, um, among other things, uh, a disastrous block, what was called a block of four classes with the Kuomintang in China. And this led, of course, to the defeat of the Chinese Revolution from 1925 to 1927. And shortly after this, um, there was um, a leftist uh, zag by the, an ultra leftist zag by the Comintern in their so called third period, which um, had the Stalinists announcing an ostensibly final period in which capitalism was about to succumb uh, to socialist revolution. And under the third period, um, reformist organizations like the Social Democrats and labor parties uh, ended up becoming designated as social fascist. Um, And the Stalinists refused to form united fronts with them against Hitler and the rise of fascism in Germany, uh, most importantly, although elsewhere as well. So out of this, uh, these zigs and zags uh, emerges the uh, popular front which was yet again um, another rightist zig, um, and it came towards the end of 1933. With the triumph of Hitler Hitler and the uh, renewed threat of an imperialist attack, uh, the now panic-stricken Stalinist bureaucracy went about lining up allies for uh, defense of the Soviet Union in the coming war. The Comintern sought to ingratiate itself with uh, the bourgeoisies of the democratic imperialist powers uh, by demonstrating that they could contain revolutionary uh, movements throughout Europe. And the ideological justification or the the method uh, that the Comintern used uh, was the popular front, which is class collaborationist coalitions or alliances uh, with the capitalist class. And the political cover Uh, and justification used in the 1930s, at least, uh, was the struggle against fascism. uh, The Popular Front 
and popular frontism is essentially coalitionism. Um, that is coalitions or blocks between the working class and its political representatives uh, with those of the ruling class. And during periods of uh, heightened or intensified class struggle, these alliances form governing coalitions or popular front governments. So the popular front therefore is really at bottom uh, an expression of the theories and the practices of class collaboration. A block of organizations and parties representing various classes, uh, the working class, petty bourgeois, uh, and of course the bourgeoisie, um, all on the basis of a common political program. And the Popular Front was codified uh, by the Communist International in August of 1935. And it argued that the main danger uh, now threatening the workers' movement was fascism. And of course, the argument went, um, as fascism threatened not only the working class, but also the peasantry, uh, layers of the petty bourgeoisie, and even uh, sections of the bourgeoisie itself. Therefore, the struggle for uh, workers' government and the dictatorship of the proletariat and socialism itself was uh, removed uh, from the agenda for the present period. And the Comintern explicitly uh, proposed a strictly stagist conception of social revolution. First, the fight against fascism, and when that's concluded, later workers' power. And this stages conception was outlined by uh, Georgi Dimitrov uh, in 1935, who at the time was the head of the commenter. So this is a quote uh, from August. Now the working masses in a number of capitalist countries are faced with the necessity of making a definite choice and of making it today, not between proletarian dictatorship and bourgeois democracy, but between bourgeois democracy and fascism. And I think that quote was actually in one of the readings from today as well. Uh, so to defend bourgeois democracy, uh, the Comintern argued, uh, the working class must ally with all other social groups threatened by fascism, including the so-called anti-fascist uh, sections of the bourgeoisie in uh, people's fronts uh, governments, popular front governments. So again, another quote from Dimitrov from uh, 1935. Under certain conditions, uh, we can and must try to draw these parties and organizations, and here he's explicitly referring to the petty bourgeoisie, the rich peasants, and the big bourgeoisie, not the working class. So we must try to draw these parties and these organizations, or certain sections of them, to the side of the anti-fascist people's front despite their bourgeois leadership. So during the third period, which preceded the Popular Front period, the communists refused to block with the German Social Democrats in the United Front against Hitler, labeling them social fascists. But now in 1935, just two years later, uh, under the Popular Front, communists were not only willing to uh, make ongoing alliances with social democracy, but to form a government with the so-called anti-fascist sections of the bourgeoisie itself. So in the 1930s, uh, popular front governments were realized during pre-revolutionary periods in both Spain and France. 
And these coalitions with the democratic bourgeoisie uh, were able to head off powerful mass upsurges by diverting uh, general strikes and even insurrections in the case of Spain uh, into the dead end of defending bourgeois democracy. In early 1931, uh, the King of Spain abdicated. And from roughly 1931 to 1933, there was a Republican socialist coalition government uh, in Spain. Uh, this resulted in an upsurge of worker struggles, uh, which were never decisively resolved. Uh, and this ended up providing a climate for the growth of right-wing political forces, which ended up coming back to power in Spain from uh, late 1933 to um, 1936. And eventually Spain became ungovernable uh, for this right-wing coalition and it ended up falling. So in response, um, the leaders of the major workers' parties in Spain moved to set up an electoral bloc for the upcoming February 1936 elections. These were general elections throughout Spain after the fall of this right-wing government. And the capitalist components of this popular front electoral bloc centered around a number of capitalist Spanish political parties. Uh, the two most important of which were the Republican left, which was affiliated with uh, Manuel Azaña, and the Republican Catalan left, which were sort of their sister organization in Catalonia, uh, which is, was affiliated with uh, Luis Companies. And most importantly uh, for us as Marxists, uh, the Popular Front also included the Socialists and the Communists. Uh, so together, all these parties ran on joint tickets and a common program in the February 1936 election. And even the left-wing PUM, which uh, was the Workers' Party of Marxist Unification, um, which was uh, a fusion and an alliance of former Trotskyists, which were headed by Andreas Nin, um, who ended up in 1935 fusing with uh, the Workers and Peasants Bloc, which was led by Joaquin uh, Morin, which was a, a Bukharanite right oppositionist organization. Uh, and together they fused in 35 to form the PUM. Um, so even the PUM, uh, which had previously denounced uh, class collaborationist politics of the Popular Front, um, even they called for a vote for Azania and signed the Popular Front's election manifesto in uh, 1936. And as a result of the fusion um, creating the PUM along with the um, signing of the Popular Front manifesto, uh, Nin, uh, the Trotskyist movement and Trotsky himself ended up breaking, finally breaking ties with Nin and the PUM. So the agreement signed in January of 36 that established the Popular Front was an openly class collaborationist political alliance and coalition. Uh, the manifesto that the, these organizations co-signed explicitly renounced uh, the expropriation of the land and its distribution to the peasants. It renounced nationalization or collectivization of the banks and it explicitly renounced workers control among a variety of other things that it renounced. Um, so the election was held in February of 1936 and the Popular Front, which was this Republican Worker Alliance, uh, won decisively and ended up forming a government under the bourgeois lawyer, 
um, Manuel Azaña, uh, who was first prime minister and then later on in 36 became president. And he really was this key figure among the Republican Popular Front forces. So I think it's also worth noting in relation to the February 36 election that um, the Popular Front candidates also received the tacit support of the anarchists, uh, the CNT and the FAI, the, the major anarchist organizations in Spain. Um, and while they didn't officially come out and oppose the Popular Front, um, it left um, their base um, confused about what approach to take in the election. And by and large, the, the anarchist mass base ended up voting for the Popular Front candidates because their leadership refused to explicitly denounce it. Now, the new Popular Front government was, of course, firmly committed to the defense of private property. Um, but among the working class and the peasantry, they nevertheless, they nevertheless saw this uh, electoral victory as um, well, a victory um, for their side. And they ended up celebrating with a variety of land seizures, factory occupations and strikes um, after February 36. So of course this created great instability among uh, within Spain and fear among the Spanish ruling class. So in response on 17th July, 1936, a general Francisco Franco and a group of leading military officers issued a proclamation for an authoritarian Catholic state and went into rebellion. <clears throat> and in the days following Franco's pronunciamento, uh, almost all 50 garrisons stationed in Spain, almost all of them declared for Franco within a matter of days. And the vast majority of the Spanish ruling class of all political shades openly backed him. And many of them ended up either fleeing into fascist held territory or moving abroad. And the, the bourgeois components of the Popular Front government at this point in mid uh, July of 1936 um, that remained committed to the Republic really represented, represented only the tiniest layer of the Spanish ruling class uh, who hadn't already gone over to Franco. And this tiny layer responded to this rebellion by Franco by initially um, denying that it took place. And when they couldn't deny that any longer, uh, they claimed that the rebellion was simply limited to Morocco, uh, not mainland Spain. And then they attempted to negotiate with the insurgent generals and were rebuffed. They also refused to dissolve the rebellious regiments in Spain and refused to arm the masses to fight Franco. And this temporizing and passivity uh, might have succeeded if the masses of workers themselves had not responded directly to Franco's rebellion. So in Barcelona, which was the chief seaport in Spain and the industrial center of the country and a stronghold of both the anarchists and the Pum, um, in Barcelona, workers ended up taking over numerous factories and storming the um, army barracks. And in less than a day, so around, you know, mid-July, July 20th, 19th or so, um, they had complete control of the city. And uprisings like this in Barcelona were um, coincided with similar uh, revolts elsewhere, uh, most importantly in Madrid and Valencia. And because of this, the Republican government was forced to backtrack a bit in how they handled Franco's rebellion. And they ended up arming the masses and attempted a half-hearted struggle against him. 
Now, outside of Barcelona and Catalonia, which is this bigger uh, department within Spain, um, the transport and industry were almost entirely in the hands of the workers' committees of the CNT, which was the anarchist-affiliated trade union. Uh, while in much of the northeast of Spain, which includes Catalonia and Aragon, uh, peasant associations and agricultural workers' unions have set up collectivized farms. The old municipal governments disappeared and were replaced by committees giving representation to all anti-fascist parties and unions. And the most important of which was called the Central Committee of Anti-Fascist Militias of Catalonia, which in many ways acted as the de facto government throughout Catalonia. And although it had um, bourgeois members that were or bourgeois representatives on its executive, um, it was thoroughly dominated by the workers' organizations. Uh, the vast majority of the leadership was provided primarily by the CNT and the UGT, uh, but it also included uh, representatives from the PUM and the Stalinists. In addition, the different political currents of the working class in Spain also established their own militia, militias. Uh, many enterprises or factories were taken over and a host of various forms of workers' power uh, of various kinds uh, emerged that were uh, uh, counterposed to the bourgeois popular front government in, in both Madrid and, Catalonia, and uh, Barcelona. So things like action committees, revolutionary committees, communes and collectives. But sitting on top of all this uh, revolutionary potential in Spain was what Trotsky called the shadow of the Spanish bourgeoisie. A popular front government in Madrid, which was later moved to Valencia, um, which was headed by Zania, and in Catalonia, uh, which had its own regional popular front government called the Generalitat. Um, this was headed by companies, Luis companies. And if we look at the cabinets of the Popular Front government, especially in Madrid, um, at first its composition was quite respectable by bourgeois standards. Um, it consisted entirely of bourgeois Republicans and bourgeois radicals, although it depended on the parliamentary support of the left socialists and the, the Communist Party. Um, However, in order to increase its authority, and especially in coming out of Franco's revolt, which had a tremendous impact on radicalizing the Spanish working class, um, it ended up having to give uh, greater illusions to working people and peasant, peasants that they had an actual share and say in the government. So the composition uh, was changed periodically to include relatively left-wing elements. So for example, um, the Spanish workers' parties, um, from the socialists to the Stalinists to the PUM, and even the anarchists, who, of course, ostensibly are opposed to even a workers' a government on principle, <clears throat> all of these organizations ended up joining uh, the bourgeois popular front government, not just simply supporting it, but joining it. So in September 1936, uh, the left-talking uh, socialist, Francisco Largo Caballero, became prime minister and the Stalinist Communist Party joined the government. Uh, they had two ministerial posts. Uh, one was Minister of Education and the second was as Minister of Agriculture. 
A few months later in November, four anarchist leaders also joined uh, Caballero's popular front government as ministers in his cabinet. And gradually even the Poom who on paper at least uh, opposed popular frontism became more and more uh, thoroughly sucked into the popular front itself. In September of 36, so backtracking a few months, uh, the Poom joined the popular front government in Catalonia and Andreas Nin was the minister, became the minister of justice. So with support of the Stalinists and the socialists guaranteed uh, along with that of the anarchists and the Poom in Catalonia, Azania and companies uh, began moving to reestablish bourgeois law and order. And one of the first tasks of this new cabinet and this new government uh, was to dissolve the organs of proletarian dual power that had sprung up alongside the official government bodies in July after Franco's rebellion. So the Central Committee of Workers' Militia in Cat Catalonia that I mentioned earlier, uh, that was dissolved and its functions were assumed by the defense ministry. And the local uh, anti-fascist councils, which were clearly dominated by the workers' organizations, they ended up being replaced by municipal administrations appointed by the government. So they were dissolved as well. Eventually, both the Poom, um, who was expelled in December of 36, and the anarchists, which lasted a little bit longer, they were expelled from the government in 37, uh, July of 37. Both, both these uh, organizations uh, were subsequently expelled from the government when they were no longer needed, even though they had uh, largely gone along with all of the anti-worker measures to liquidate the revolution. But this was still not enough to entirely break the back of the Spanish working class and a provocation instead of some sort um, was required. And this came during the May days. So on three uh, May days in 37. So on the 3rd of May in 1937, the Stalinists attacked the Barcelona telephone exchange, which then was held by the CNT working, workers, the anarchist uh, trade union. And within hours of the Stalinist provocation, uh, barricades were erected throughout Barcelona and the workers were once again in a position to take power. Instead, the Poon and the anarchist leaders capitulated to the central government and ended up trusting the pledges that there would be no, no reprisals. And only a few days later after capitulating, the assault guards, which were these special police and paramilitary units in Spain, they arrived in Barcelona and occupied the exchange and ended up killing hundreds and jailing thousands. And after the May days, uh, the army of the Republic moved in very quickly to uh, smash the left. Within one month, so by June of 37, the Poom was outlawed by the central government and its leaders were arrested. And of course, Lin, was, not Lin, Nin, Nin was eventually captured and tortured and murdered by the Stalinists. Subsequently, the collective farms were dissolved, the land of the peasants they had originally um, taken uh, control of, that was taken back and the, uh, the remaining militias were broken up. And although the Spanish Civil War dragged on for another year and a half until uh, 1939, the result was already largely decided. 
since the workers and the peasants no longer had anything to fight for, they became rapidly demoralized and the superior armaments of the fascists um, ended up carrying the day. And of course, Franco would eventually take power in 39 and rule Spain in a military dictatorship for almost 40 years. So obviously the Stalinists, um, uh, the official communist party, uh, which led the offensive against the anarchists and the Poom, they were particularly hostile to the Poom in particular. Um, but they were also hostile to the collective farms and the workers' militias. The Stalinists hold a great deal uh, of responsibility for the defeat in Spain, um, <clears throat> but so does the Poon. By capitulating to the Popular Front government, uh, that is, by supporting it in the uh, February 1936 election, then propping it up once it came to power, and ultimately joining the Popular Front government in Catalonia, the Puma were as responsible uh, for the defeat of the Spanish Revolution as Stalin. Trotsky once wrote in relation to the Puma's betrayal, quote, contrary to its own intentions, the, the Puma proved to be, in the final analysis, the chief obstacle on the road to cre the creation of a revolutionary party. Now, I want to conclude uh, the last sort of section of um, this presentation uh, by spending a little bit of time talking about um, what a positive program for workers' power in Spain would have been. Obviously, there's a lot to criticize uh, when it comes to the Spanish Popular Front, um, but I think it's important to have a positive example of what we believe um, should have been done. Um, and here I wanna draw upon lessons of the Russian Revolution of 1917, which in many cases faced uh, a lot of the similar political issues as in Spain. And I wanna highlight the key role played by the Bolsheviks who provided an invaluable example of how to handle many of these questions. So what would, not all, but some of the key elements of a revolutionary program for workers' power in Spain have been? Well, much like the Bolsheviks, um, it would have guaranteed the right of self-determination to the various national groupings in the country. Right? I mean, obviously the Bolsheviks, um, Tsarist Russia was a, an empire that included a vast number of various languages, ethnicities, and nationalities. And uh, to some extent you had that in, in Spain as well, in particular in the Basque region, but also in Catalonia. In granting and guaranteeing self, the right to self-determination, to these peoples in Spain would have undermined support for the nationalist political parties that were participating in the Popular Front government. Um, the Basque, Nation Basque nationalists, who I didn't mention, uh, were part of the Popular Front in February of 36, and the Catalan left, who I did mention, and they were obviously in the Popular Front as well. So guaranteeing the right to self-determination would have helped uh, to undermine um, support among their base and hopefully win over some to a revolutionary party and program. A revolutionary organization and program in Spain would have also granted complete independence for Morocco, which at that time was a, a colony it was carved up between both uh, Spain and France. And Morocco is also where Franco's forces uh, were based when he rebelled in 36. I believe he was the key general overseeing the occupation. And uh, that's where he was stationed when he rebelled. And his forces also included a lot of Moroccan troops. 
So a revolutionary government granting independence to Morocco, uh, which the Popular Front refused to do uh, because they were afraid that it would alienate their French allies, who of course were also occupying Morocco, um, among other imperialist powers that had colonial possessions in Africa. Um, granting independence and appealing to Franco's troops with revolutionary propaganda would have significantly undermined his forces from within, uh, split them, hopefully, uh, and built sympathy within the Moroccan masses for a, a revolutionary government in Spain. Thirdly, a revolutionary program would have also included calls for expropriating industry, financial institutions, and the government coffers, as well as the large landowners, the nobility, and the Catholic Church, and collectivizing their property where possible, and uh, at the very least breaking it up and distributing it to the poor peasants, which of course the Bolsheviks did as well. Uh, this would have won over uh, large layers of the poor peasantry and further helped to split the base of Franco's forces, many of whom were poor peasants themselves and farmers. And to decisively defeat Franco and the threat of fascism, what was needed was to wage a revolutionary war uh, by cohering the various dispersed uh, forces of the working class, right, who were in various militias, trade unions, revolutionary committees, and cohering them into united, disciplined uh, fighting units. Not under a new army of the bourgeois Spanish Republic, which ended up happening, that is an army committed to capitalism, but instead uh, fighting for workers' power and socialism, much like Trotsky's Red Army and their victory over the whites in the Russian Civil War. But of course, the key programmatic task uh, in Spain was to oppose the Popular Front, uh, to break up the coalition with the remnants of the Spanish bourgeoisie and decisively smash the capitalist state. This required politically reorienting the Spanish working class and oppressed away from supporting the Popular Front and instead towards establishing and then further consolidating organs of a new state power. Uh, councils or Soviet type formations. Uh, which would have been capable of uniting all layers of the working class and oppressed into a single organizational body throughout Spain, a Spanish Soviet Republic. And this would have helped cut across some of the atomization and the weakness which was inherent in the setup of the Spanish resistance, which was divided into various trade unions, militias, action committees, and so on, um, that all kind of tended to be affiliated with specific political groups. So this ended up kind of effectively sealing off uh, the more revolutionary minded elements from uh, wider layers of the Spanish working class and discouraged political discussion and debate between organizations. And when coordinated actions between different political groups did happen, and of course they certainly did, I, I, I talked about the central committee of militias that in Catalonia that more or less ran uh, that part of Spain. Um, Organizations like this, um, their decision-making process was by often by mutual agreement or consensus, uh, explicitly with this kind of Catalonia anti-fascist committee. Um, and it wasn't by the method of uh, majority votes by democratically elected delegates from the militias and the factory committees making up the, the larger regional committees. 
And so by just deciding things based on consensus or mutual agreement between the organizations, this ended up allowing the, the leaders of the Spanish working class, when they began making concessions that were detrimental to the Spanish revolution, it ended up allowing them to do so largely with impunity because there were no votes held that they could point to committing, or their base could point to, committing them to carrying out a particular decision, action, or political program. Now, those points uh, for a program for workers' power in Spain, obviously none of this really did take place. And in the end, the thing that made it possible for the socialists and the CP and the POOM and so on to, to limit and control the struggle was their alliance with the Republicans, this openly non-working class party or parties within the popular front. And uh, they were able to say to the Spanish working class, the, the reformists were, look, um, the bourgeoisie, they're crucial to our struggle. We can't beat Franco and win without them in the fight against fascism the monarchists and the military and the landowners. But of course, if we're gonna make an alliance with the capitalists, we can't expect them to have our socialist program. So we're gonna to have to concede and we're gonna to have to accept their program of respect for bourgeois property to keep order. And in this way, the alliance with the bourgeois party simply gave the army um, and the fascists time to prepare to, to smash the class struggle piece by piece. And ultimately, the difference between the victory in Russia and the defeat in Spain lay entirely in the quality of the political leadership of the left wing of the workers' movement. What was missing in Spain was a revolutionary Bolshevik-type party or organization with enough of a mass base in the working class capable of leading a revolution, a party that was opposed to all wings of the capitalist class, including the supposedly progressive anti-fascist wing, incapable of articulating a program and fighting for a proletarian seizure of power. Thank you.